Hello, and welcome to the Charter Cities podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, the founder and executive director of the Charter Cities Institute. On the Charter Cities podcast, we illuminate the various aspects of building a charter city, from governance to urban planning, politics to finance. We hope listeners to the Charter Cities podcast will come away with a deep understanding of charter cities, as well as the steps necessary to build them. You can subscribe and learn more about charter cities at chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter, and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. Thank you for listening. Our guest for today is Ed Glazer. Ed is a professor of economics at Harvard University. He's the foremost urban economist in the world, with his work focusing on cities, housing, segregation, obesity, crime, and innovation, among many others. Ed leads the Urban Economics Working Group at the National Bureau of Economic Research. He co-leads the Cities Program at the International Growth Center, and he's a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Ed's written or co-authored several books, including The Triumph of the City, and more recently, Survival of the City, Living and Thriving in an Age of Isolation, published this year with David Cutler. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hi, Ed. Thanks so much for coming on. Oh, I'm so happy to be on with you. Okay, first question. I wanted to start with a recent review paper that you wrote with a couple co-authors called Cities of the Developing World. Right, broadly, much of the developing world is urbanizing rapidly, especially certain parts, India, Sub-Saharan Africa in particular. The only sort of comparable world to urban migration to in this sort of scope and scale in recent memory is China of the last 40 years, right? So, so here's my question. What are the main lessons that rapidly urbanizing regions today can learn from China's urbanization since 1978? So I would also throw in urbanization in Latin America here. So in the 1960s, there was a whole literature that was wondering about how it was that, that Latin America had urbanized without industrializing and why it is that Latin America had become majority urban, but was still reasonably poor. So Mexico becomes 50% urban in 1960, Brazil, I think in 1964, and they're still reasonably poor places. And Latin America is now you know, one of the most urbanized places. It's more, it's more South America is more urbanized than North America. So as we think about, you know, I, and I think, in fact, in some sense, Latin America is just a more natural comparison with India and sub-Saharan Africa than is China. I mean, China is so unique in terms of its uh, public sector control, in terms of its public sector capacity, which is just at a totally different scale than most of the developing world. Feel free to use Latin America as the, as the comparator then. Absolutely. So one of the things that, that is worthwhile learning from this is that the Latin American story is while they urbanized while they were still poor, right? And remember, I mean, America didn't become 50% urban until 1920 when our per capita income in modern dollars is over $8,000, right? Which is vastly higher than most sub-Saharan African countries today or, or India for that matter. And in the past, of course, you couldn't have a majority urban society until you were reasonably rich because you needed agricultural surpluses to pay for all those people who did non-agricultural things. Today, it's in both the agricultural sectors in the developing world are much more productive. So the backdrop for Mexico City's vast rise was the Green Revolution of the 1950s, which generated those agricultural surpluses, which made it a reasonable thing to move into cities. And also they can be fed from the developed world. You know, Haiti can, you know, uh, be fed with rice shipped out of New Orleans. But even though, even though these countries urbanized and they were poor in the 60s, they eventually got rich. 
And so even if it looks sort of, or they got middle income, they got, they got richer than they were. And so I think the first lesson is always to resist the image to say, resist the urge to say, look, there are all these poor people crowded together in cities. Isn't this horrible? We should stop the growth of cities, right? And I think that's always my most important lesson is that I know of no path out of poverty into prosperity that does not run through city streets. And this does not mean that we should ever artificially subsidize cities or that we should, you know, push people into cities. But it is hard to look at whether or not, you know, we look at the cross-sectional correlations or the relationships within country or Mushfik Bumbarak's experiments where he, you know, gives people money and enables them to move to urban areas. It's hard to look at any of these and think that urbanization is something to be fought against. But it is something to be improved. And the cities of the developing world desperately need things that will make them more humane. Now, in some cases, this is about you know, the economic side, and certainly most of the urban economics that has been written in the developed world has, of course, focused on the upsides of cities in the economic realm, has focused on the reasons for agglomeration, economics, and so forth. But in the developing world, I think we have a larger contribution in terms of fighting the downsides of density, in terms of dealing with crime, contagious disease, high housing costs, and traffic congestion. Now, what are things that we can learn from Latin America? Well, one thing is, as you know, been learned worldwide, which is the bus rapid transit. So Latin America embraces bus rapid transit. This starts in Curitiba. It's a, you know, Colombia has made it its own with a Transmillennial, right? So this is a much less expensive alternative to rail. It runs in dedicated lanes. It's more flexible than rail. So uh, there's a lot to like about buses. In fact, there's an old joke that 40 years of transportation economics at Harvard can be boiled down to four words, bus good, train bad. Um, and that, in some sense, was the intellectual background for, for bus rapid transit. Similarly, in terms of another, the other transportation thing, I think really comes out of Singapore, not not Latin America. But Singapore embraces congestion pricing in 1975, when it is still a poor city, and its streets, you know, still move much more quickly than any comparable city in the world that I can think of, because it charges people for the social cost of their actions. Now, the second thing to sort of think about in terms of Latin America is how they built up. And there's a lot of Latin America that's now pretty high. And that makes things somewhat easier. Tall buildings can be harder to defend, particularly public housing projects can be harder to defend. But, you know, height is a way to provide affordability on a narrow amount of space. And it's a way to make transportation easier as well. And so at least thinking twice about regulations that make it difficult to build up is a is an important thing. And this is, I think, more important in the, in the Indian context than for much of uh, much of Africa. A third issue is around crime. Now, Latin America still has some of the most ferocious crime problems in its cities in the world. In fact, you know, but there have been successes. I mean, Colombia is where I would look above all, but also Monterrey and Mexico, where, you know, there have been particular groups that have been effective at fighting crime. So sometimes this involves alliances between the business community and the government to actually provide extra resources. Sometimes it involves other forms of intervention. But the the, the fight against crime is another one where we can look for, for, for to Latin America for assistance. Now, contagious disease. Really, if we want to go back to contagious disease, I think the more natural parallel is the U.S. in the 19th century, where, in fact, we were we were poor then. And, you know, we fought we fought very hard for hygiene or Europe in the 19th century. I do particularly like and I think it's particularly important to have these South-South communications. I think that's sort of a very rich range. And I, I am always in favor of encouraging more linkages between Latin America and Sub-Saharan Africa or India. Okay. And I'm going to pick up on, because you mentioned sort of urbanization without industrialization in, in your answer. So I'm going to pick up there. And uh, right, a lot of urbanization in both India and Africa is happening without industrialization. And this type of industrialization has accompanied sort of historical urban transitions of now rich countries, 
right? We have the work of Remy Jedweb and and others. Danny Roderick has written about premature deindustrialization, right? The worry here being that pretty much no rich countries today have become rich without going through manufacturing. But the issue is that manufacturing usually requires some baseline level of of institutional development, right? It requires transport, infrastructure, inputs, like power at industrial scales. So do you worry as much about this as the Jedwebs and the, the Rodericks, or do you think there's a viable alternative path to prosperity outside of manufacturing? I worry about it. I'm not sure that manufacturing at all exists a viable path. <laughs> and I guess I have more hope that there will be alternative paths. But I have very little confidence about any of this, Curtis. So you're certainly right. It's certainly true that it's hard to do manufacturing without good infrastructure, without available power, without functioning ports that work well, without institutions that protect investors who put down large, significant amounts of of fixed capital. But even in the best case scenario, is it obvious that private non-subsidized manufacturing in sub-Saharan Africa can beat out Chinese or other East Asian equivalents in a world in which manufacturing has just become vastly more capital intensive. So that's my worry. And I, I you know, I, I take this worry more generally, both about the, the wealthy world and, and the poor world is, you know, I sort of believe that the future for less skilled workers in the U.S. all involves urban service work, all involves the 32 million Americans who prior to COVID labored in leisure, hospitality and retail trade. Those service jobs are dominant in developing world cities as well. It's less clear what will be the thriving export industry for these areas, although exporting some service is possible. But in a world in which just machines make so many of our, our ordinary goods, I just have trouble seeing a world in which the, the, the sole advantage of low-cost labor will enable any country, even with better institutions, even with better infrastructure. So in, in a level, I'm both more, you know, more pessimistic even than Roderick and, and Jed Webb. But I'm somewhat more hopeful in that I at least hold out some possibility that there could be a service or you know some other innovation led path towards transformation. And I guess like like the the tech sector in India is is kind of one one example of that. And so historically, most urbanization you could argue I think plausibly was due to pull factors, right? With opportunity in cities drawing folks in from from the the hinterland from the rural areas. Today, I think you could argue a lot of urbanization is a result of, of push factors, right? Things are just so bad in, in rural areas that a lot of folks are just sort of fleeing or for exiting in search of any alternative, even if there's not much urban opportunity in terms of jobs. And I guess, like, when I think about this, I'm, I'm surprised at how little this is talked about, because one could argue these are two fundamentally different kinds of, of people. We have one that sort of self-selects themselves into urban life in search of opportunity in the big city. They seem to be entrepreneurial. They seem to have accepted that they're going to meet some strangers and they're okay with that. That tends to, I guess, be sort of higher trust people. They're sort of more weird in the in the Joe Henrik sense of the word. And then you have, on the other hand, someone who's just kind of fleeing these rural areas. They hasn't necessarily gone through that same weird transition. They're a little less weird, maybe more Kim-based, maybe a bit lower trust. Do you buy this, this um, distinction between, we could call it, pull urbanization people and and push urbanization people? I'm not sure the difference is as big as you think, right? So Boston's, you know, two dominant ethnic groups throughout most of the last 150 years 
were the Brahmins, the Yankees, and the Irish. I don't know by what definition the Irish Boston were pulled, right? I mean, I think of I think of them as very much pushed by a famine that that you know slaughtered their their kinsmen. They seem to have, within a couple of generations, have done pretty well, leading not only the city in politics, but pretty shortly putting a president into the White House, as well as producing a lot of titans in in a variety of different areas. So it's less clear to me that you know the selection of different types of migrants is. I mean, I think we correctly worry about the selection of migrants in our regressions, but it's just because we were worried about in our regressions doesn't mean that we think that should think that these people are wildly different. And, you know, most of the time, I think that people are kind of similar, <laughs> in, in, particularly in basic drives and, and so forth. Now, there's no question that the poor parts of the world are different culturally. But I think that the ability of cities to absorb different cultures is fairly remarkable. And it, you know, it goes on now as then. And I, I guess I'm I'm less sure that the case that there is any case made that European culture is so great relative to African culture in terms of anything. So I, I know and like Joe, but I, I'm not I'm not so sure that this is I mean, we have we had a lot of other advantages going for us as well, including guns, germs and steel. And my own view is that, you know, whenever I'm in an African city, I'm sort of just amazed by the amount of entrepreneurship and creativity that I see around me. So you've done some research on on primate cities. Today, we've seen lots of countries across the global south adopt plans for so-called secondary cities to attempt to sort of stem some of the mounting pressure on their primary cities. Are you sympathetic to these secondary cities plans or not so much? I'm sympathetic to the idea that we understand that politics artificially bloats particular cities, which might be a good reason to limit the tendency to, to throw rents to people who live near, the, near the, the leader, right? And so I can see a good reason for either decentralizing some power or even within the current power structure, figuring out some sort of checks that limit, limit that tendency. Secondary cities feel very dangerous to me in the sense that, you know, like all sort of, you know, planned from the start, top-down cities, they can easily go awry. And I tend to like my cities to be fairly organic and, and ground up. And while I certainly, you know, I think gridding is a great thing, and I'm certainly in, in, in pro-gridding, I think it's pretty hard to actually be all that confident that we can build a secondary city that will be anywhere near as productive as, as our primary cities. And you visited the, the Dharavi slum in Mumbai. What were the main things that you learned from that visit, that experience? Well, it was just an amazing time for me. So I was both awed by the level of creativity and entrepreneurship. You know, there were just these clusters of talented people that were, you know, just in one level, there were, there were guys who were, who were um, sewing undergarments and you felt like you were in the Lower East Side of Manhattan in like 1906. And there was this ceramics cluster and there's a woman who was so proud of the pot that she gave to me. She wouldn't even take any money for it. And then there were these guys who were recycling plastics. And like, this is one of these things where like, how in the world did they learn that there was money in recycling plastics? Totally amazing. And that's all fantastic. And then, then you like see a kid defecating in an unpaved road and you know, the electricity is intermittent and you know, the water isn't safe to drink. And it reminds you of just, you know, how you have this combination of private dynamism and public failure and how cities require help in terms of managing and monitoring their these demons that come with dense. And so that's that's at least what I took away from Dharavi. It's just enormous confidence in, in entrepreneurship, even of the poorest Indians, but enormous frustration with how difficult it is proving to, to provide the core public services that every urbanite deserves. Yeah. And I get this is a good segue into a few questions on urban governance. So given urban governance, institutional development are low in many developing world cities, right? Naturally, alternative ways of providing services to citizens other than through this weak public sector are needed. 
this is where private provision or, or PPP provision comes in. But there's sort of a mixed record here. Angles gets at this and others. So in your view, for which services and under what conditions does privatized or PPP provision work best and, and on the other side work worst? The big problem with private provision, at least as, you know, as I see it over the, over the long 200-year time period that I've, I know its history, is the tendency of private providers to subvert the government. Right? So you have a highly incentivized, highly capable, cash-rich entity that is quite capable of either legally or illegally subverting the government. Right, bribing it. If it's if the government is subsidizing it, the, the entity figures out how to, you know, trick the subsidies. If there is a uh, a well-defined bid to establish a very low return on investment for a water provider, you can bet that you know two years later they will have renegotiated that contract and it will go from a two percent return to a nine percent return. Right, these things routinely happen, and so you really need a robust public structure to actually deal with this. Because otherwise, it just gets you know uh, just gets totally taken over. There are other there are other forms, of course. There's the, there's the possibility of an independent public entity as well as pure public provision. An independent public entity, however, only works if you have a person at the top who has sort of a global reputation to lose, or at least a national reputation to lose. Whereas if you just have sort of a parastatal enterprise that's run by a crony of the of the leadership, a political leadership, then it becomes a way for the political leaders just to, you know, to, to hide the blame on, and to put the blame on someone else. So I think that's somewhat problematic. Across sectors, it's not obvious that you have any clear winners and losers, right? Harchlifer and Vishni would tell you that purely public provision is more valuable when you don't want cost-cutting incentives that will then cut away quality. So that that would be the HSV kind of kind of view on that. And that seems that seems right. And that's probably relevant for things that you can't measure the quality on. So we would worry more about that on water if it's not weren't for the fact that it's actually pretty easy to measure water quality on, on some regular basis. As long as you have a public sector that's willing to measure it and you can write a contract where you penalize the water company for not providing clean water. Okay. And you mentioned a lot of these private provision or PPP provision going to sort of renegotiations frequently. I think the the example Angles uses actually his own Chile did quite good at introducing the PVR, what does it stand for? Present value of revenue contracts to help address this renegotiation problem. Is there anywhere else doing this really well? So Chile is is extremely good at this. There are some parts of the US which seem to have had along the Chilean model relatively effective PPP highways. Typically, this is monitored at the state level. And so places that have relatively competent state governments tend to be the good ones. In terms of other other places where we think we have PPPs that are are quite good. We know from Engel's own work that Sub-Saharan Africa tends to be a complete disaster, right? That that much we know. And I think there are other Latin American places that are reasonably good, possibly Colombia. And this is sort of related, but what can developing world cities today learn from the way big urban infrastructure projects were financed and built in, in the 19th century? Certainly my experience with things like the European private toll roads has been positive as a driver. But I cannot tell you that I've looked into the data on whether or not these contracts were good for the for the governments themselves. That I'd have to leave to Eduardo for to, to answer on this. In terms of the the history of paying for infrastructure for the institutions that wrap around infrastructure, there's a lot to like about user fees. In most cases, right, there's a lot to like about about making sure that it's the end, it's the person who's using it is paying for it. Sometimes that's not possible. So in the case of clean water, you may just have a situation in which a straight out fee does too much to discourage use. 
So in that case, you either need to subsidize or you need to engage in some kind of a Pigouvian tax associated with not using. So in the case of New York City, the way that they solved the last mile problem that afflicted the Croton Aqueduct and the water pipes was to fine tenement owners who didn't connect to the water system. Okay. Okay. And and I guess you know you mentioned sort of governing structures or institutions around around infrastructure provisions. So this kind of folds in with that. Government it, it often comes up against what I, I think it was Larry Summers called it the promiscuous distribution of veto power or Fukuyama called it a vetocracy or, or something like this. And you and your co-author of this new book, David Cutler, write about this sort of tangentially in, in survival of the city about the power of incumbents to block building or or block new entrants. How do cities get over this sort of vetocracy and NIMBYism, I know they're sort of distinct, but they're related. Are there examples of cities that are particularly good at, at combating these? There is a question as to whether or not there are democracies that are pretty good at embattling this. So certainly, for example, your case of China, one doesn't feel as if every neighbor has the right to veto every project. And in general, I think East Asian economies tend to be, East Asian polities tend to be somewhat better on this. It may be just more deference to government. Anglo-Saxon countries tend to be, Anglo, common law countries tend to be the worst in terms of just having hyper-empowered neighbors on everything. Or even in some cases, you know, they, there, there are sort of principles that came out of British town and country planning that worked their way into Indian land use regulation that also feel like they're, uh, you know, empowering neighbors to say no to uh, note everything. Like the Garden City plans of, of the Right, UK. the Ebenezer, yeah. Ebenezer Howard and the, 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 the views, which feel like they're very empowering to, to neighbors. So typically, you, the stronger, if you're sort of going to go along the political continuum, the stronger the executive, usually the more easily you can say no. Because legislators, particularly place-based legislators, are very sensitive to constituent concerns. And so they tend to empower those concerns. So that's where, that's where I would look for the remedies of this, is, is some form of a strong central leadership to push back on this. Okay. And, and I guess in terms of strong-willed leaders, you know, in your work on developing world cities, I'm curious, have you come across this sort of Robert Moses figure, whether, whether, good, whether good or bad, somebody that's able to, to really effectively overcome political constraints to building and, and by do so sort of transforming the city? Well, Lee Kuan Yew certainly qualifies as being Robert Moses on steroids, in a sense, right? I mean, he, he transformed the whole society, right? With it's not just not just building some bridges and, and parks. I don't know the full story of the transformation of Seoul or Tokyo. Those stories are, are more opaque to me than they should be. But clearly, they had those figures at various points in time. Clearly, they were able to build on a massive level. Whereas there's no sort of European city which has you know, since Baron Ausman in Paris in the 19th century, been willing to sort of completely run roughshod over the existing existing community. So it's it's certainly not a European uh, feature, but the East Asians seem to be the ones who have, have done it most. And we've talked about infrastructure a bit. So I have to ask, there's an infrastructure bill before Congress. What does it get right? And what does it not get right. <laughs> so I'm glad that we've got a focus on infrastructure. I wish there was more of an embrace of cost benefit analysis in this. I mean, I take a very strong view that economics doesn't do a very good job of telling you what's the right number. I mean, you know, should it be 1.5 trillion or 3.5 trillion or 0.5 trillion? Uh, but we've got an approach and approach is to, you know, add up the benefits both direct and, and as ancillary benefits from infrastructure. And then we try and compare these with the costs. And then we say, you know, we want to do it when the benefits handily exceed the cost. There's very little of that in our, um, in our infrastructure plan. Now, to a certain extent, for some forms of, you know, particularly maintenance, 
when it comes to repaving old roads, I'm pretty comfortable to do them with that to do that without a cost benefit analysis for every repaving. That that would be kind of an insane thing to do. But for any sort of large scale big projects, that should be sort of enshrined as a big part of our approach to, to infrastructure. That was something of a hope with the idea of, of an infrastructure bank that had been floated during the late Obama administration. It was less clear to me that that bank was going to manage to do that. But that was certainly a hope. An alternative is there could be uh, some form of cost-benefit analysis that's required for all large infrastructure projects that come afterwards, but it has to be done by an independent entity. I mean, you know, the California high-speed rail cost-benefit analysis was done by Parsons Brinkerhoff, which was the contractor that was going to make a significant amount of this thing. I mean, that's not a, that's not a viable possibility for this. So, Okay, so moving onwards, this notion of the the fifteen minute city is being taken up by a lot of urban planners. It's favored right by by Paris's mayor right now. You've written that it's a dead end. Why? So the fifteen minute city is there are elements in the fifteen minute city with which I I have a great deal of sympathy. So one of which is pedestrian walkability. You know, economists by and large shouldn't take strong rules and having a favorite mode of transportation. So it's not really what we should do. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of walking. And I think probably we subsidize the car too much historically. And so it's a perfectly reasonable thing for us to have an increased focus on walking. And there's another aspect, which I'm even more enthusiastic about, which economists should have a strong view on, which is thinking about the regulatory barriers to sort of small scale entrepreneurship in every neighborhood to make that neighborhood more livable. Uh, I think that's an absolutely appropriate thing for us to us to think about. And that's one element of, of the 15-minute city. But what I dislike is the idea that we should think about our cities as fragmenting into different enclaves that are distinct from one another, right? I dislike the idea of thinking that you're not going to view the entire metropolis as being your, your home, as being a place in which you're comfortable going. Because another way of thinking about a city that's broken into 15-minute cities is it's a city of segregation. It's a city of ghettos. It's a city of, of enclaves. And for me, at least, I think the whole point is that we, we need to figure out ways to get our poor, particularly children, who are living in these areas to connect with the entire city, not to be siloed into their own particular area, but to have the ability to travel throughout the place. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you mentioned walkability. So brought up this conversation in my head. I, I had with a it was a developer in Kenya the other the other day. He basically he basically said walkability won't work here in in Kenyan towns and cities because he said newly wealthy or newly upper middle class people they want to show off their their wealth and so it's this sort of status signal to drive a car. And, you know, because humans are, are status seeking creatures, you're, you're going to have a tough time as a developer if you basically outlaw, outlaw cars. And this is, in a way, I guess, it's analogous to things like meat consumption, too. As wealth increases, meat consumption increases in part because it's a bit of a status signal and, and so, too, with cars. So, I guess, is there a way to push back against this? Because I guess if newly wealthy Chinese or, or Indians all use cars, we're kind of, we're kind of screwed, aren't we? We are kind of screwed. <laughs> that's that's quite right. There is a certain amount of Western, you know, Western urban development, Western Western town planning that can feel very precious from a developing world uh, point of view, right? You know, it's hard to think that like the most important thing in Johannesburg is bike lanes, right? So I've seen a lot of empty bike lanes in Johannesburg. I've seen a lot of empty bike lanes in highly hilly spots in Sao Paulo, right? And yet this is what, you know, you get from a lot of Western high-end people where bike lanes are a wonderful thing for Amsterdam. And I'm in no sense pushing back or Stockholm. And they're, they're, they're great things in some parts of the world, but you really need to be focused on what's, um, 
you know, what the area needs. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you can't have more walkability. I think most importantly, it's worthwhile pushing back on the car, right? I mean, there's whether or not it's through congestion pricing or appropriate oil taxes, right? Cars are, are a big pain. Now, most of the time in the developing world, at least poor people aren't actually taking cars. Poor people are taking, are taking whether it's jitneys or some form of formal public transportation. And, you know, you probably will keep them more in public transportation longer than in a car if you if you tax gas or you tax uh, road use more. You can also do more with land use planning, right? So the Mumbai, you know, floor area ratio restrictions means that you when you do have height and you do have height, it tends to be surrounded by green space. Now that's a that's a very you know unproductive thing because they're just trying to they're just trying to ha- deal with their floor area ratio needing to be an average of some fairly low number. I mean, a good model for Mumbai is something that looks like. Manhattan or Shanghai, right, where you have a lot of tall buildings right next to each other and people can walk around it. But unless you sort of embrace density, you're not going to be able to get that. And you're not going to be able to get that unless you sort of have the have the zoning that allows you to embrace density. It's also related to issues in property rights, which makes this hard as well. So uh, the way that the West developed was wealthy apartment owners, apartment builders, bought up land that previously had had low density dwellings. They invested significant amounts of capital and then they rented it out, right? There are lots of barriers to doing all of those things in the developing world, right? There are barriers against building tall towers. There are barriers against renting, such as various rent control limitations that exist. There are barriers which may make it make you feel uncertain about sinking that level of capital because you're not sure whether or not you're going to get to keep it. So all of those things are barriers to this that kind of transformation. And they make it harder to develop the sort of tall towers next to each other, which are the natural model for walkability. Mm-hmm. Okay. So so we chatted a bit about cars, a bit about infrastructure, about walkability, and these sort of all relate to, to suburbanization in a way. Now, it's obviously, post-World War II, the US went through this period of intense suburbanization centered around the car. Is this kind of suburbanization a trend you foresee in China's near future, right? China's just just rapid, uh, rapidly urbanized over the last 40 years. It's built an unprecedented amount of infrastructure. Its car usage is obviously increasing. Is suburbanization what we should now expect in, in China? And how do you think it will maybe both differ from the US experience or be similar to it? It's a great question. So there are, suburbanization in the US was in a sense completely understandable. It reflected, you know, the, the enormous appeal of the car, plus a certain amount of federal subsidy, right? So it, it was the fact that the car just, you know, the average commute by car in the US is about 24 minutes. The average commute by public transportation is 48 minutes, right? And that's because of this 15 to 20 minute time fixed cost that's involved in going to the, the subway stop, waiting for the subway to arrive, and then having the subway take you to where it's eventually going, and then, you know, getting off and then walking walking at the, at the end. That's, you know, avoided with a car because a car is Point to point, it's not hub and spoke. It doesn't doesn't involve all these ancillary trips, and so we shouldn't be surprised that public transportation took off, and we shouldn't be surprised that we rebuilt our cities around the car. I mean, we have always built our urban spaces around the transportation technology that was dominant when they were being built. You know, our er- earliest cities are built with the sort of short blocks and narrow alleyways that are associated with walking. Our 19th century cities, which were associated with wheeled transportation like streetcars, were built with, you know, larger blocks, often more gridded. And then, you know, our late 19th century cities were built around rail cars that ran either either above or below the ground. So it's not surprising that we did that, but it is a very different urban form because all of those other urban forms involve some walking either at the 
you know, at the beginning or at the end. And so they always had to have a certain amount of clustering that wasn't there in, the, in car-based cities. Now, what should we expect about China? China puts a lot of barriers on driving, and they're likely to continue doing that. So I think we should expect a certain amount of urbanization, a certain amount of suburbanization, but I think it's likely to be more limited. Secondly, China has built and, you know, has been more committed to building high-rise urban space. Families tend to be smaller. And even with the end of the one-child policy, the families are still small. And so the push to sort of, you know, large suburban homes is not going to be as big. Moreover, there's no sense in which you have a, a system that creates this natural segregation into suburbs because of school districts, right? There's just nothing in the education system of China that leads you to think that, that we're going to see these suburban enclaves that people form. They're really anchored by the fact that you have a public system that's really more like a private school system as, as you do in the U.S. So for all those reasons, do I expect there to be some interest in car-based living in, in China? Yeah, sure. Right. Some of it already occurs and more will occur as well. But I don't see it as being anywhere near as explosive as the U.S. And I suspect also it won't be because I don't think the Chinese you know, central government is particularly wants to see that develop either. They're quite wary about their own dependence on fossil fuels that need to be imported. And uh, they're not particularly eager to turn themselves into a massive consumer of, of gas through cars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I guess this discussion kind of relates to to environmental concerns. And, and so. My question is sort of, is the environmental Kuznets curve pretty much a, a, a universal path that cities have to go through? And, and if that's the case, what are the implications for negotiations at, at COP26 this month, for, especially for rapidly urbanizing developing countries? Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, I'm with Thomas Schelling on this. It's really hard for a nation that drives SUVs to tell a nation of bicycle drivers that they can't get on like motorized bikes, right? It's, it's, uh, it's, it's really hard for the U.S., to really have any degree of moral suasion here. Basically, all that I can say on this is that I, you know, there's bound to be, I, I, I agree with the, your sentiment. I agree that, that it is hard to imagine that the poorest parts of the world will not see higher levels of carbon emissions as they become somewhat richer. I can't imagine that. And I, I certainly would never, you know, would never, would never want to decree that anyone has to get through an Indian summer without air conditioning, right? And yet, you know, that's, Millions of Indians don't have any form of air conditioning right now, and they will sur- surely want some, and that will be a whole lot more energy use. So we both face this sort of cardinal imperative of, of trying to do something about, about our carbon emissions with the fact that the poor world will surely want, and it's hard for us to say no, that they, that they should want things which involve more carbon. I think we just need to help around the edges and to try and push them to Perhaps this is also an area in which you can you can engage in more cash for cash for good behavior kind of thing. So there's there's a bit of a win win situation there. Okay, so so moving I guess on to, to topics more directly addressed in in your new book, Survival of the City. So one is education, right? You you write a lot about uh, how critical education is in the book as well as in your broader writing. I was speaking to a now ex city manager in the U.S. He'd been in the position for forty years. And we were chatting about what attracts people and businesses to cities. And he basically said he has this model in his head of, of three questions that people answer when they were thinking of moving to a place. One is, where will me and my spouse work? The second is, where will my children go to school? And the third is, uh, where will I let loose on a Friday night? So with that, why are large cities failing so badly on that second question about schooling? You know, it's a very U.S. related thing. I mean, it is it is certainly the U.S. data is is positively shocking. I mean, in terms of how bad our our upward mobility is in cities. And this really became crystal clear from the Opportunity Atlas data that Raj Chetty and and his co-authors have put together. Right. I mean, it, it is 
density is negatively associated with upward mobility, both across cities and within cities. The, you know, there's a decided regression discontinuity at the edge of big city, central city school districts, both in terms of upward mobility and a big jump downward in your probability of being incarcerated as an adult. You know, so it's, there's, a, there's a strong positive gradient. As you move further and further away from the city center, you actually are, are, have higher upward mobility. So all, all of these things suggest the degree to which our, our cities are failing their children. And it's hugely important. And I, I don't know, really, I mean, in terms of what the reform path is, is should be for these big city school districts. I, I think it's a combination of things, right? I mean, in terms of how we got there and why they're failing. I mean, one of which is just the selection process that occurred, that the earliest car drivers, the earliest commuters tended to be wealthier. And so, you know, our suburbs formed with more elite parents and and then you know they became attracted more elite parents who then moved for the for the schools uh, it's probably also true that our big city school district school systems have had management problems in many areas that have made them uh, function uh, underperform you know many of the virtues of cities are related to competition and innovation which tend to be disappear when you replace that with a large public monopoly uh, which is one of the reasons why I like things like, well, I like charter schools too. I like things like, you know, as we propose in the book, a, a sort of vocational training, which is competitively sourced and, and funded with a fee for service model, which is something you can't really do with, with charter schools, with, with normal schooling, because we're so, we're so amorphous about what our goals of what public schooling is. But if you're trying to teach someone to be a plumber or a programmer, you know whether or not they've learned that skill at the time that they're done. So you can actually just not pay the provider if they, if they fail to, to deliver the skills. So I think we need to do things that involve more innovation and more competition in our cities, but we certainly have failed to do so so far. In terms of higher education, right? A lot of countries uh, across the global south, they lack high quality universities. And, and that means like so many of their, their best and brightest end up going to Europe or to North America for their education and lots end up staying away. What are your thoughts on a, a sort of moral land grants act for countries in say sub-Saharan Africa, right? Using the, the land grant college model to quickly establish a sort of uh, ecosystem of higher quality universities. I don't know. I don't have a strong view about it right out of the post. I hadn't, I, I haven't thought that much about it. I, so just to give maybe context, I say this because, because this is kind of, kind of a proposal of Jonathan Gruber and Simon Johnson of MIT in their their book Jumpstarting America. But that's an American that's an American hypothesis, not not a not a developing world hypothesis, right? You can I mean feel free to speculate, but right, basically using the the dynamic duo of a high quality university sort of complemented uh, by by you could call it a science park or innovation hub that can commercialize new ideas and, and bring these to to market. If there what are the parts you sort of disagree with and and uh, or agree with? In the US I certainly like the idea of, I mean, you know, I, I, I wrote a review of that book and I certainly, I certainly got myself all gunned up about how great it would be for America to have more, more money spent on R&D thanks to their, their highly charismatic writing of this thing. But I'm not at all sold on the idea that you want to do anything sort of regional about that in the U.S., in the sense that I think most of our attempts to have sort of regional NSF, regional NIH, right, most of that is fairly unsuccessful. Now, that's different than the land-grant colleges, which, as we know from the work of Enrico Moretti, really have had a long-term impact. And it is true that, you know, uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan had this quip, if you want a great city, build two world-class universities and wait 50 years. And it is certainly true that complementarity and density are highly, sorry, that, that skills and density are highly complementary with each other. I just don't see that the sort of U.S. regional things will necessarily lead to world-class universities. And I think the most important thing in terms of biotech research, let's say 
finding finding preemptive vaccines which will ward off the next pandemic. The most important thing is not using these as tools to rebuild Appalachia. It's to actually make sure we fight the next pandemic with with the disease. So that's sort of my U.S. context view on this. Now, I don't in the developing world. I think it's more difficult. So uh, I think there certainly is a lot to like about more education in the developing world in many ways. Um, I am a little bit worried about a track record that has very large federal funding for tertiary education uh, at the expense of primary and secondary education. So I remember in, in some Chilean constitution, I think of the late 60s, there was sort of a number built into the constitution that no less than 8% of government spending or no less than 8% of GDP could be spent on tertiary education, which seemed like it was a really big amount of transfer to upper middle class children at the expense of the poorest, uh, the poorest Chileans. But uh, um, I, I, that being said, I think we certainly need to be open on this. And I think it's certainly a great thing for philanthropy and the developed world to be focused on is, is how to create, I mean, universities in the developing world as well, or how to do more to fund the existing universities in the developing world. So uh, I think that's, and certainly like the track record of Indian educational institutions is amazing. I mean, many of them are older and many of them are great. Okay. And I get on the topic of, of uh, good universities, I asked Matthew Kahn this question back when he was on the podcast and you two are co-authors and I think went to the University of Chicago together. So I'm going to ask you as well. And this sort of goes back to urban governance, which is often plagued, as you know, by sort of misaligned incentives. These incentives often encourage uh, short-termism, right? Cities are often sort of stepping stone to higher offices. So mayors want to get these quick wins. Election cycles are, are often short. Um, so this neglects the, the long term. But if you look at Chicago, which where you where you went to school, it, is it sort of the exception that proves the rule? Because it had only two mayors, the, the two dailies, right? Richard Daly and, and his son that served for a really, really, really long time. I think it's over 40 years or something in, in the post-war period. So long time horizons. And Chicago's done quite well relative to, to other Midwestern cities in the, in the post-war period. Do you think there's something to this story or is this just uh you know sort of random correlation no i think there there are the, the daily dynasty has some unattractive elements but it has many attractive ones as well as you say um they certainly had a long-term uh long-term vision for the city they were very good at limiting nimbyism i mean chicago has stayed much more affordable partially because it unleashed the cranes near on michigan uh, like michigan so i mean all that stuff is um is good. These were very pragmatic leaders. Now, they also have also engaged in short-termism, right? I mean, the famous privatization of the, the, the meters uh, in Chicago, which was basically, I mean, th there's privatization that makes some sense, which is about, you know, actually getting real cost advantages from having a public provider. And then there's privatization, which is just uh, entirely appealing to the short-termism of the mayor, which is we're going to front load you these revenues that your city was going to get over the next 50 years. And, you know, you're going to like it only because we're front loading it to you. And, you know, the younger Daly did that. And that's I, I don't think he deserves a lot of credit for it. And it suggests that maybe even he wasn't as long termist as you would have you would have liked him, uh, liked him to be. OK, going on to to sort of uh, covid and, and city related questions, which is the second, I guess, big theme of of the new book, Survival of the City. So a few questions. First, a major pressing problem today is the huge pressures on global supply chains, the the backlog at ports in various cities, largely induced by the way the pandemic has, has played out. What are your thoughts on how best to grapple with these supply chain challenges right now? Our cities are, you know, these these nodes on the global lattice of travel and trade, right? Uh, and but it's not obvious. Uh, and, and, you know, we've been through, I guess, I guess that's the way that I would actually look at this. 
that, you know, VR, we have been through an unprecedented, you know, global shock, right? This thing has been absolutely stunningly unlike anything we expected. And so the fact that we've had some supply chain problems, and, and they're significant, I'm not trying to understate them, it's in some sense completely expected. And I think my basic view is that our supply chains tends to do fairly unbelievably well most of the time. And it's, you know, it, it's... Now, we could probably do more with border controls related to goods, right? We can probably speed that up a bit. So uh, in terms of the, I mean, obviously, we need some degree of, of checking on this stuff. But my guess is that you know, there are too many, too many uh, uh, buses waiting online in the, in the Canada-US uh, US border. But to a certain extent, this is, this is just inevitable. And we should do what we can around public action. Uh, but I don't think I have any kind of a sil- silver bullet. And another COVID in cities question. So in theory, cities are supposed to, they're supposed to have a bunch of positive spillovers from people and firms co-locating together, right? People are supposed to spread ideas quicker, learn better, have have higher productivity through their closeness to others. And you could say that social distancing is the opposite of, of closeness. So then we'd expect to see things like decreasing productivity. But in fact, we saw just the opposite during COVID. So what's underlying this? Well, so I've spent some time with the productivity numbers, and it's not quite as rosy as it appears. I mean, there, there was a, it sort of depends on which which quarters you take or don't take in terms of making things look great. To a certain extent, in some fields, we just had the number of people declined a lot. So that often makes per, per worker productivity look really good if you just let workers go like crazy. But I think there's no question that there are a number of occupations in which remote work has been just fine. My my own view is that for many sort of simple jobs or even not so simple jobs, we can do it long distance, but we lose sort of these dynamic benefits that come from being close to one another. And you really see this in the work of Nick Bloom and then uh, Natalia, Natalia Emanuel and Emma Harrington that looks at call center workers who are sent home. In Nick's case, it's through a it's through an actual actual randomized controlled trial. And what you see is in the short run, there's no no impact whatsoever on productivity. In fact, in Nick's work, they get more productive by being sent home. But in both papers, you see a decline in probability of being promoted to a upper level person, an upper level call worker by more than 50%. Uh, at least the way I see, I see this is I think this is, this is because what you need to do to be promoted is you need to be someone that your boss can trust you to actually handle more difficult calls. And how would your boss learn that you're good at this stuff if your boss never sees you? How would you learn to do it if you never see anyone else? And so the sort of dynamic benefits that come from being around other people by being amidst a maelstrom of economic activity, that is that is lost when we're not in the same room with one another. Uh, it's also true, of course, that you know the, the work on learning in schools that we've seen, and we have some very high quality surveys on this, high quality studies on this. It's been sort of re- remote school has been somewhere between disastrous and counterproductive. And there's also the de- sharp decline in the number of hires for these tech jobs, for jobs that can be done remotely. And this comes from the work of Jose Ramon Morales and Carlos Davoin, who show that while remote jobs had their employment stay steady, their new hires dropped by about 40% and stayed down for over a year. By contrast, the live jobs, they fell when COVID hit, but then they came back and both the postings came back as well. So for example, computer programmers, you know, Microsoft told us they were just as productive at, at home, but new postings for computer pro- programmers on burning glass were down by 40% between January and December of, of 2020. And there's a nice paper that just came out from Sonia Jaffe, who looks at um, 
workers within Microsoft. And I'm just going to read you a sentence from it uh, because it's about the um, it's about forming partnerships in it's, it's a paper that's titled The Impact of, of Remote Work on Collaboration. And it's published in Nature Human Behavior. Well, let's see. The effects of remote work on a collaboration among information workers. So in the abstract, I'll just read this sentence. Our results show that firm-wide remote work caused the collaboration network of workers to become more static and siloed with fewer bridges between disparate parts. Furthermore, there was a decrease in synchronous communication and an increase in asynchronous communication. Together, these effects make it harder for employees to acquire and share new information across the network. So I think there are big reasons to think that there are, are limits, at least some limits, on working from home. Okay. And I guess zooming out a higher level question. So despite the the really profound impacts of globalization, why are London and New York still the only truly global cities? I don't really disagree with this, uh, this statement. Although certainly there are, um, certainly there are, there are French who would argue about Paris and there were, were uh, might be Japanese who would argue about Tokyo, but they've both been capitals of very dominant countries dominant in a way that no other country has been. They're both capitals of, of fairly open societies, which I think makes in general easier. Um, I don't know if we want to say that their cultures are necessarily more open, but uh, the world has had to accommodate themselves to those cultures. And so a lot of people speak English. And so that has certainly, that has certainly helped. And of course, they both built massive amounts of infrastructure, which enables them to connect to the world. And there's no other sort of countries that sort of had the kind of global sway that the UK did in the 19th and early 20th century or the US did in the second half of the 20th century. And so I think that's, that the fact that they're both essentially the commercial capitals of uh, these sort of large uh, mega powers for the time is, is what's going on. And we haven't, we just don't have any other country that's held that degree of sort of global connection. And certainly, well, the rise of China you know, has has been remarkable. And of course, in the late 20th century, there was a second superpower. But uh, Moscow was not a global city. It was it was a, a closed country. It was a totally different model of society. And I would be skeptical if, if Beijing will ever feel as open as New York or London do. And and this is the Charter Cities Institute. So I have to ask a, a, a Charter Cities related question. So don't don't let uh, who you're speaking with bias your answer. <laughs> so in your book, right, you 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 write, and I'm quoting here, cities across the world uh, should experiment with pro-entrepreneurship uh, institutions. Could you see uh, charter cities as one way to, to do this? Sure. Why not? Absolutely. I think, the, look, uh, the, the idea of charter cities is great. I mean, I, I, don't, have any, I don't have any problem with the idea uh, of having sort of some kind of entity that, that can guarantee a, a better set of economic institutions, can guarantee openness, can guarantee more rule of law. And there's certainly a lot to like in the cities of the world that have played charter city-like roles throughout history. I just think it's very hard for countries to commit not to, um, you know, to, to if the city ends up being as successful as it will, to actually not grab it. And I think that's the hard part is sort of the polit political side of it. And I think, I think this is also a question as to sort of how you think. So uh, when I think about Paul Romer and myself, I tend to have a much more ordinary economist mind than Paul, in the sense that when I think about things, I think immediately of, of, well, if I think of a new idea, I immediately start thinking, well, what are all the reasons why the private sector doesn't do this already? 
right? What are all the limitations on this? That's a perfectly good instinct for an ordinary economist like myself to have, but it tends to limit your ability to be a successful entrepreneur of new ideas, right? It tends to be because you, you see that you, you're all focused on why the, it was an equilibrium that, why the current equilibrium we have is an equilibrium. Whereas Paul tends to have a more, you know, just sort of hyper-creative entrepreneurial mindset. And that's why in some sense, he's able to sort of push ideas like this and, and run with them. And I think that's that's exciting. And I think that's good. I mean, the more ideas that we have in the urban mix globally, the more visions that we have for different ways that cities can evolve, the better off we are. Okay. Last question. Uh, you write in the book uh, that you and your your co-author, you say, much as we wish it were otherwise, the two of us have made our share of mistaken claims and prognostications. So uh, with that, what assertion or claim have you written about or made in the past that you've changed your mind on most, whether that's sort of completely reversing your past stance or just significantly updating your priors? I think I radically underestimated the downsides of global trade to America, to certain American regions and pockets of American society. I think, and I think I'm not, I'm hardly alone in that. But if I think 20 years ago, if I had any idea that, you know, openness to China would have had the impact that it had on certain regions in the U.S., I don't know that I would have been against it, but at least I would have given more pause. At least I would have thought about, you know, this as being something that's really risky that that we're going to do. And I don't think I I don't think I focused on that at all. I would say that I was I was quite clear that house prices in Las Vegas and Phoenix were going to correct in 2006, I, 2005. I mean, I'm, I'm on the record on saying this on CNBC, but I was blind to the impact that that would have on the larger financial system. Right, completely blind. I mean, I thought, well, it's overpriced right now. Thank goodness it'll come back down to normal equilibrium prices, which are close to supply costs. So that's that's great. We'll have we'll have more affordable housing. So I just totally whiffed on on that one. Um, so I think those are those are the ones that I'm sort of most conscious about in terms of large scale public policy things that I've gotten wrong. I will say there are other things like you know the standard errors in my 1992 JP paper, growth in cities, are all wrong. Right. But that's a that's a more, you know, that's that's none of us knew about spatial correlation in those days. There was no Tim Connolly corrected standard errors. So that's that's one that's sort of of more scientific interest. And most of the cases like the T statistics are six. So, you know, the T statistics should be four. So that's that's kind of OK. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned uh, high prices. Uh, this was back in the um, global recession. But I, if, I have to ask, like the inflation question today, what are your. Is it transitory or not, Ed? <laughs> uh, now you're you're asking me a macro question that I'm uh, I'm not comfortable giving a prognostication on that. I think it would not surprise me. It would not at all surprise me if if we had significant price correction in response to massive deficit spending. That's not out of character with you know past history of this. I would not be surprised if this ends up being uh, more permanent going forward. So, um, but you know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna state, state a very strong opinion on it. I will also not be surprised if it ends up being more temporary. We are in a very strange time period, so uh, I think it's very hard to read, for example, about what the future is for housing prices in cities based on what's happened over the last 14 months, just because it's the housing markets are so disrupted and so screwed up because of it. Well, that's all the questions I had for today, uh, Ed Glazer. Thanks a lot for the great discussion. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on, Curtis. This has been fun. Thank you for listening to the Charter Cities podcast. For more information about this episode and our guest, to subscribe to the show or to connect with the Charter Cities Institute, please visit chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, and thank you for listening to the Charter Cities podcast. <laughs>